If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 589. 1 Peter chapter 4. There are four types of people who participate in the enjoyment of and bear witness to a football game. There are those who are on the field and actually playing the game. There are those who are standing on the sidelines, cheering their team on, waiting to be put in the game. There are those who are seated in the bleachers, watching and enjoying the game. And among those in the bleachers are also those who are simply there because someone dragged them there to it. They are physically present, but mentally they are checked out. Truth be told, they could actually care less about a football game. And then there are those who are at home in their recliner. An armchair quarterback, they might say, watching the game on television. Without moving an inch, other than drinking their sweet tea in one hand and eating their Saturday snack in the other, the armchair quarterback is both very confident and very critical. The armchair quarterback sits there in his or her comfortable couch, criticizing the coach's decisions, yells at the referee's calls, and gets frustrated to no end with the performance of most of the players. And yet, out of all the people involved in the game, the armchair quarterback seems to know exactly what should be done more than the people actually involved in the game. And thus, they pride themselves on supposedly knowing better than everyone involved who are actually at the game and even those who are playing in the game. What's odd about that picture? What doesn't seem to register as logical or make much sense? Well, what's odd is that the most confident and critical person among the four types of people isn't even at the game. They're not even in the concession stand. They're not even in the stadium. And they certainly don't have anything to do with standing with the team on the sidelines. The irony is most of these armchair quarterbacks today didn't even play organized football in their entire life. And yet they seem to know all the problems and have all the solutions to every football game, all while sitting in their temperature-controlled room, relaxing in the living room recliner, keeping a far distance from what's actually going on in real life in that game. Now, as comical and odd as that picture may seem, this could be true of someone's observations of different church members who are in a local church. You see, in any given local church, there are generally four types of members who make up really any number of congregations. First, there are members who are faithful, active, engaged, invested, hungry, and teachable. They are on the field. They are getting their jerseys dirty, we might say. They are doing what Kevin DeYoung once said, they are just doing it. They're working as a team, carrying out the plays directed by the coach, sacrificing for one another in order to see the team become successful, in order for the church to be built up and to honor the Lord. Second, there are also those members who might not be as active or as involved as those previous members I just described, but they are certainly supportive and encouraging. They might be tired, so they've needed to sit out from serving for a bit. They might be injured and they need to be cared for and counseled and and walked alongside, maybe to train and get stronger. But they are very much still present. They are ready to do whatever is needed for however long their service is useful to the team, useful to the church, useful in the Lord's hands doing his work. Third, there are members who are there, but it's one foot in and one foot out. Sure, there are ebbs and flows of engagement and excitement, but there is also a silent distance between them and the actual field, a distance between them and the actual players who are playing on the field. For whatever reason, they've resigned to peeling back, staying on the fringe of the church, 
The bleachers make them feel safe from any of the drama, conflict, hardships, or challenges the team might actually be facing on the field. But at the very same time, that distance makes them feel less useful and less effective of making the team any better. Members in this situation sometimes feel stuck, stagnant, and they don't know what to do. Lastly, there are those members who have tons of opinions and are very confident in their assessment of the problems and their knowledge of the solutions. But their pride is the number one problem in their way. They've isolated themselves and to themselves for too long, and they've basically checked out. Unless things go exactly the way they want, when they want, they are quick to offer criticisms and complaints, but are slow to consider that they might actually be the problem. Instead of the church needing to change, that church member might need to change. Friends, which one of these members best describes you tonight? The member who is active and engaged, serving faithfully with joy on the field? The member who is active on the sidelines, supporting and encouraging others, waiting for opportunities to serve however they can be useful. The member who is physically present but is drifting more and more to become mentally and spiritually absent in the life of the church. Or the member who is basically already checked out and refuses to change unless things go exactly the way they want. Friends, if you and I were to humbly ask the Lord to search our hearts tonight, regardless if we're elder, deacon, or member, whether we've been here from the inception of this church or we were voted in just two weeks ago, if the Lord were to reveal in our heart which one of those members he says we are, what would he show us? Well, friends, tonight I want to direct our attention to the next section in our First Peter teaching series, We've been studying 1 Peter on Sunday nights on and off since August 7th, 2022. And it's been a rich meditation to consider what it looks like to keep a heavenly perspective as Christ followers while suffering on earth in this fallen world. To that end, we've been reminded of our heavenly inheritance that cannot be taken from us, our permanent identity in Christ, the call to holiness and love. And for the sake of our witness for Christ, we've heard instructions on how to submit to fallen, sinful authorities, both in the civil sphere as well as in the home, just as Christ did in his life, yet without sin. Uh, Last time we were together, Michael Janus was teaching us from 1 Peter 4, 7 to 9. Look down with me at what we looked at last time. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Tonight, we continue our focus on what it means to live as sojourners and exiles for Christ on earth while living lives that commend the gospel and strengthen the church. So friends, if sober-mindedness, prayerfulness, brotherly affection... Extending forgiveness, extending hospitality is what glorifies God in our lives. Then what does it look like to glorify God with our spiritual gifts? What does service to the body of Christ for the glory of God look like with the supplies, the gifts that he has blessed each one of us with? Look with me now at 1 Peter 4 verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here is the main idea for tonight's teaching. Whatever gifts God gives you, use it to serve one another for God's glory and not for selfish gain. 
Whatever gifts God gives you, use it to serve one another for God's glory and not for selfish gain. Several exegetical points I want to draw our attention to just from these two verses alone. These might be helpful for you if you're taking notes tonight to give you some handles. There's about five or six of them with some subpoints. Point number one, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Look at what Peter says in verse 10. As each has received a gift. Hear it again. As each has received a gift. Friends, that means that every sinner who comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is equipped with spiritual ability to discern God's will and to do the work he has prepared for us to do. Friends, there are no exceptions. There are no qualifications with that statement. There are another, well, maybes, and what about those? No, there are no Christians on planet Earth that go without a spiritual gift. The Apostle Paul said the same exact thing in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Friends, listen to this. At the cross, Jesus not only paid our sin debt in full, he paid for something else. He wiped the the slate clean. Yes, he justified us and declared us righteous. Yes, all that is true, but he paid for something else at the cross. He purchased for his people every spiritual blessing that we could ever possess on this side of heaven and for all eternity. And friends, the Bible clearly teaches us one of those blessings is that he has blessed each Christian with a spiritual gift to bless his church. Friends, that's exactly what we read in the book of Ephesians. Christ literally went to the cross. He died. He ascended into heaven. And through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he gives gifts to his church. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 7 and following. But grace was given to each one of us. There's again that all Christians without exception. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he, that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he's going to specifically mention certain believers who have been literally given as gifts to the church. And these would be the spiritual leaders for his people. Ephesians 4 verse 11, and he gave, Christ gave, listen, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Christ paid for our sin debt in full and he also purchased the ability and the privilege of having gifts to bless his church. Observation number two. Every spiritual gift is given to us by God. Every spiritual gift is given to us by God. Look at verse 10. As each, did you see the next word? Received a gift. Friends, our spiritual gifts were not something we earned. They are gifts we received. Let me say that again. Our spiritual gifts are not something we earned. But they are gifts that we received. Our spiritual gifts were not something we obtained by taking a class, filling out a survey. It wasn't by the mom or dad we were uh, born under or the country, state, city, or town we grew up in. It wasn't by being morally superior to others, some kind of legalistic ladder we climbed. Friends, our spiritual gifts had nothing to do with how good or righteous we are. Our spiritual gifts are not something we earned or achieved or accomplished. No, our spiritual gifts are simply more evidences of God's unmerited favor 
poured out like the oil on Aaron's beard all over our life. And to that end, every Christian is given a spiritual gift or a set of gifts in accordance with God's wise and sovereign design. Listen to that statement. God gives us gifts according to his wise and sovereign design, not ours, not our plans, not what gifts we wish we had or we envy in someone else. But he's given us gifts according to his perfect plan. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 18? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Dr. Tom Schreiner echoes this point when he says this, quote, We must recognize what God made us to be and avoid trying to be what we are not. We are to bloom where God has planted us and find the niche where God has placed us and live with all our strength for God's glory. A realistic assessment of our lives and our talents and gifts brings great contentment about our place in life if we rest in God. How many live in unhappiness because they aren't content with what God has given them? Brothers and sisters, just clearly right off the bat here, don't envy the way God has gifted someone else. If he wanted to make a carbon copy of you and I, he could do that. But friends, the church is made up of a diversity of gifts, and it leads to discouragement, discontentment, anger, and resentment when we are looking at the gifts that God gave someone else And we're not actually using the gifts and thanking God for the gifts he actually gave us. Friends, everything about our life is evidences of God's grace. Justification, sanctification, glorification, regeneration, adoption, election, predestination. It's all a part of the golden chain of his gift of grace in our life. And so are the spiritual gifts he gives us. As one commentator put it, spiritual gifts are not merit badges, but service towels. Which leads to our third point. Our spiritual gifts are to be used for serving others and not ourselves. Our spiritual gifts are to be used for serving others and not ourselves. Look again at verse 10. We're just camping out on verse 10 tonight, y'all. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? What's a spiritual gift? I mean, if we're supposed to use it and use it to serve one another, I mean, what exactly are they? Again, Tom Schreiner has a very clear and concise definition. Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. In other words, all our spiritual gifts have the same overall aim in mind. Listen to this, friends. They are abilities that are unlearned and unearned by us. That's the difference between a natural talent you can acquire and improve versus something the Spirit gave you that you once did not have. Friends, if you would have known me when I was a child, I would have been way more shy than the most shy introvert in this building. The fact I stand up in front of people literally as my life to preach and teach God's word is a miracle. Call my parents if you don't believe me. I know I was not born with this. No, I wasn't. No, no, no. Rocks for jocks, okay? Sitting in the back, can't wait for recess. The fact that I'm a preacher is a walking miracle. And that's not only for my giftedness, but that's also because of my sin. By God's grace, it is, blows my mind every week that I get the privilege to do this knowing who I am. And friends, the same is true for us. None of us have anything to boast in. The best thing about us is his grace to us. Friends, all of us have been given spiritual gifts that were unlearned and unearned by us, but empowered by the same Spirit, authored by the same one Lord, 
adopted by the same father for the one bride, the church. So friends, in a very real sense, listen to this. When we are using our gifts the way God intended each one of us to use them with the right heart behind those gifts, listen to this, what happens? When we are ministering to others, Christ is ministering through us to others. You see, if we're being what God made us to be and not someone else, and we're doing it with the right heart, with its humility and love and sincerity, giving it all we got, there is in a real sense you are being ministered to when another Christian is serving with the gifts Christ gave them by Christ himself through them. Friends, that's why it's a great privilege to be a Christian. We're saved by grace and we get to be used by Christ to impart grace to other people. This is a supernatural endeavor. You know when someone says, man, God really used you in my life, and you go, huh, you got the wrong address. Me? Me? It's precisely what God's in the business of doing. Taking the least likely, those who feel the most weak and worthless, and he wears them out so that he gets all the glory in the end. Friends, whatever these gifts are that God gives us, it's to build up the church. That's the point. I mean, with all the new construction going on in Chaffee Crossing right now, what would you do if you saw someone lighting a roof on fire? What would you do if you saw someone taking a sledgehammer and smashing windows in a brand new building? What would you do if you found a gang of people literally breaking the building down brick by brick? Well, if you're any sane human being that cares about the community, you would probably think something's wrong. Something's off. Someone is up to no good. Because new construction is primarily about building up and not tearing down. And even with building renovations of existing structures, the tearing down is simply to remove the bad and the ugly, not destroy the foundation or demolish the good that actually has been built. And friends, the same mentality should be for us in this local church. Our aim in our membership in this congregation is to build up the church, not tear it down brick by brick. Building up is the work of Christ. Tearing down is the work of the devil. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, 12? So with yourselves, since you were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Friends, that's why the church is called to warn, mark, avoid, and watch out for those who aim to tear down the church, threaten to destroy the church, to expose and reprove them if their words, attitude, and actions are actually harming the church. Friends, to trifle with Christ's church is no small thing. To tamper with it, to draw it astray, to cause confusion in it, discontentment, disunity, division. Christ hates it. Friends, Jesus calls us to exercise our gifts with the right attitude and the right aim in mind. And friends, this should all cause us to do some heart examination tonight, shouldn't we? One of the most unspoken but toxic sins in the church today is the idol of self-importance. Jesus told us to wash feet. Our sinful nature wants the church to kiss our feet. And that is an abomination to our Lord. If we use our gifts to draw excessive attention to ourselves, we use them wrongly. If we use our gifts to puff up our egos, platform our pride, and to fish for compliments from others, we're using them wrongly. If we use our gifts in any way to be our all in all, our idol of identity, friends, it's an idol we worship, not gifts we use to worship. 
Friends, anytime we put our happiness, contentment, joy, and identity in the gifts God gives us, we are putting the cart before the horse. Friends, the heartbeat behind Christianity is not about knowing what your spiritual gifts are and treasuring them. It's about knowing who our God is and treasuring him. Enjoying God, loving God, worshiping God, becoming more like Christ for the glory of God, that is the chief end of our lives. And friends, when we become more like Christ, you know what will happen? We will think less about ourselves. We'll even think less about how important we think our gifts are. And we'll think a whole lot more about building up the church and God getting the credit. Friends, we will have a whole lot more joy if we simply try to obey Romans 12, 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Friends, at the end of the day, it's God who determines how our gifts should be used and what our gifts really are. And friends, it's the local church that Jesus has put on the earth as his hands and feet, members visibly that we can see to affirm or not affirm our giftings and our perceived callings from God. You see, friends, the local church serves both as an accountability to our walks with Christ, but it also serves as a spiritual gift evaluator. For example, if you go to Walmart and you're checking out in the kind of fast lane checkout, whatever, you got that cool little scanner. It's a little gun, you know. My kids, they love it. I'm like, don't shoot it too many times. I don't want that number to go up. But what does that scanner do? That scanner doesn't create food. That scan just simply scans the barcode to reveal what the food is. Friends, in the same way, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't give anybody spiritual gifts. We can't give anyone salvation. We can just point people to the one who can. In the same way goes with our gifts. The local church is like a spiritual barcode scanner. When we're listening and watching and seeing people serve and those gifts become self-evident, well, then we become more aware of how God's gifted us when we are invested and immersed around other members of that body. And friends, when we, when we get off track and we start thinking too much about our giftedness, we fall into that idol of self-importance. Friends, that's exactly why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, the primacy of love over our spiritual gifts. Author uh, Dustin Benji has rightly said, quote, the one another passages are not suggestions for a successful life, but commands for right Christian living. Unity is impossible when we consider ourselves more significant than others. The anthem of disunity is me, myself, and I. We desire our opinions to be heard, our views to be considered, our plans to be fulfilled. We could go as far as to say that unity requires the obliteration of self. It is the complete denial of self to maintain love, fellowship, and peace within the church. Friends, spend time reading 1 Corinthians 13 this week and see how love is far more important than how spiritually gifted you and I may be. Friends, we can only express that kind of love towards one another if we first are experiencing Christ's love for us. When we lack this kind of love for one another in the, in the church, friends, it's probably because we stop looking to Christ for our source of joy, our source of identity, our source of fulfillment, if you will. Friends, anytime we put men, women, or ourselves above Christ, it always leads to bad places. That's even why tonight when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do so first by self-examination, being reminded of what Christ has done for us and being reminded that we are members of his body, his people. One Puritan prayer on humility and service could be a useful one for all of us to consider. Mighty God, I humble myself for faculties misused, opportunities neglected, words ill-advised, I repent of my folly and inconsiderate ways, my broken resolutions, untrue service, my backsliding steps, my vain thoughts, 
Oh, give me repentance unto life. Cement my oneness with my blessed Lord, that faith may adhere to him more immovably, that love may entwine itself around him more tightly, that his spirit may pervade every fiber of my being. Then send me out to make him known to my fellow men. Oh, may God grant us all repentance if self-importance has taken root in our hearts. Exegetical point number four. Our spiritual gifts are a stewardship from God. Our spiritual gifts are a stewardship from God. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. What are stewards? They're managers, not owners. Spiritual gifts are a stewardship. They are given to us in this life, and they are not needed in the next. Spiritual gifts are a stewardship where we are entrusted with certain gifts to be used for certain purposes by our Lord for a length of time he determines. They've been given to us by his design, both as men and women, in accordance with God's design and scripture. And that's why we should consider reading the parable of the talent sometime from Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, to think about on the last day, we're going to give an account for our talents, for our money and stewardship of skills, opportunities, and spiritual giftings. Consider even how pastors and teachers will be examined on the last day. James 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about the shepherding account. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Friends, it's not just pastors or elders will stand before Jesus on the last day to give a stewardship either. It's all Christians. If all Christians have been given a spiritual gift, we've been all given a spiritual stewardship of those gifts. How you used your gifts, how you submitted to the biblical leadership of Elders and pastors who watched over your soul. Friends, to whom much is given, much is required. It is a great trembling of the human soul to hear sound teaching in a clear gospel and not be changed by it. It is judgment on a church and on a country that rejects the light God has given them through his word. Friends, to whom much is given, much is required. If we have been gifted exceptionally, that stewardship will be a stricter judgment. Friends, that's why we should all grow in the fear of the Lord for the rest of our days. Care more about Jesus and serving him than appeasing everyone else around us. Friends, if God is absent from our hearts, then other people will take over it. Friends, read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 15, and 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5 this week. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 15, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. Those are passages that deal with our stewardship on the last day. Exegetical point number five. There are a variety of spiritual gifts that God gives his people. There are a variety of spiritual gifts that God gives his people. In other words, just kind of shortened to the point, we are all not gifted the same, and that's a good thing. (laughs) Amen? I sure don't want Tim Blake's walking around. We've just got one enough. Peter says in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The ESV coins it very grace. Your translation might say manifold grace. This speaks of God's creativity, of gifting his people in ways that are different from one another. But all those gifts are still needed. If you want to read more about spiritual gifts this week to add to your homework, Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, And then I just read from Ephesians 4 earlier. So Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, and Ephesians 4. I want to answer a few common questions that Christians often ask. I've either asked them myself or I've been asked. How do I know what my spiritual gifts are? 
How do I know what my spiritual gifts are? Raise your hand if you've ever asked that question. Raise your hand if you've thought about the question, but you've never asked it. Okay, there's Matt. I want to answer this in several ways. First, the New Testament does not teach, advocate, or give any example of a survey being passed around to discover what your spiritual gifts are. Nowhere do the apostles or their disciples use tools like Strength Finder Test, Meyer Briggs, LinkedIn referrals, or other man-made devices to find out how God gifted you. Historically, I'm not aware of any sort of spiritual gift inventory test being used by born-again Christians until the latter half of the 20th century. That means nearly 2,000 years of church history have taken place where Christians have been mightily used of God and never filled out a survey a day in their life. Number two, the weight of the New Testament. Let me give you the weight, okay? I'm going to visually show you the weight of the New Testament emphasizes being discipled and making disciples in the context of a biblical local church and not worrying endlessly how you're gifted. Let me say it again. The weight of the New Testament, what it emphasizes, is on being discipled and making disciples in the context of a biblical local church, not discovering our gifts and worrying all that much about it. Here's what that means. There are over 50 one another commands in the New Testament. Friends, that's a lot of commands. Our church covenant artfully puts them together in pledge form. So if we are giving ourselves to the one another commands and aiming to fulfill those commands every week of our life, it will become self-evident to us and self-evident to the others in that biblical local church how God has gifted us by Christ. The most fruit will be pouring out of our life in certain areas of those one another commands. We just give ourselves to following Jesus and the most fruitful aspects of our follow of Jesus may very well indicate how God has gifted us. So, for example, if you're gifted to teach, it will become so evident to others when every time Christians are around you, they are helped to know the Scriptures better by listening to your explanations. Friends, if people walk away utterly confused, more confused than when they first came to you, you're probably not gifted to teach. Now, God can use you and give you sound counsel and wisdom, and you can certainly teach people the scriptures and not have the gift of teaching. But if someone is a self-appointed preacher, but they can't preach their way out of a paper bag, mm, they've missed their calling. That's not what they should be doing with their life. If you're good with kids, kids won't run from you, but run to you. You'll have a patience and a tenderness that puts parents to ease and make children feel secure. If you're good at hospitality, you'll be known by many in the church as being approachable, available, inviting, making people feel heard, known, and loved, especially in the lobby or even in your home. If you're good with logistics, organization, spreadsheets, and administrative tasks, you'll give great solutions and provide well-thought-out plans to make things run smoothly behind the scenes and your administrative gifting among the body will be self-evident to everyone who has been benefited by it. You know, interestingly, unlike Paul, Peter doesn't spell out all these spiritual gifts in his letter. He just breaks them up into two broad categories, speaking gifts and service gifts. That's why I like Peter, because we ain't talking about tongues and prophecy tonight. (laughs) I know that's why some of y'all came. Y'all can do that when we get to Corinthians one day. Look at what it says in verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What are the oracles of God? It just simply means the scriptures, the word of God. Thus saith the Lord, what God has said. So if someone is gifted for preaching and teaching, or even writing, encouragement, exhortation, they will speak what God has spoken. They will do it clearly, they will do it effectively, and the church will be built up by their speaking gifts. And then there are those who have many different variations of gifts of service in the church. 
Now, this can take on all sorts of ways, but think of the life of a deacon. There's a problem, I can find a solution. We need to get from A to Z, the elders lead the vision, but I can help you get from B to C, D to E, F to G. I can come up with solutions to those problems, and you give yourself to those acts of service. So how will you know your spiritual gifts? Matthew Amati gives a good answer. There are needs in your church, all kinds of them, so stop waiting for the perfect opportunity that aligns with your gifts. Instead of refraining from service until you figure out your calling or your spiritual gifts, serve in various kinds of ways, listen, and your gifts will surface through your service. In other words, just jump in the deep end, start swimming, and it's going to become very clear what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. Carrie Fulmer likewise says, our focus in the church shouldn't be determining our spiritual gifts, but determining the needs of the body. How can I serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? What can I do for the common good? We shouldn't ask how the church can platform our gifts. We should ask how we can use our gifts according to the needs of the church. Another question that some ask, how will I know the needs of the church? Here's four quick words of advice. Number one, pray. Pray. Ask God to search your heart for impure and selfish motives and to uproot them. Ask God to give you a humble and contrite heart, eager to serve regardless if you get noticed. Ask God to give you opportunities and make the needs aware in your life. Which leads to my second word of advice, look. Pray. Look, get your spiritual binoculars on and start looking. Look for the needs when you are among the body. Talk to the leadership of the church. Get really direct. I love direct. Just ask me, what are the needs of this congregation? I've got a whole scroll of them. Go to the elders. Talk to the deacons. Get to know the members of the church on a deeper level. So if you are wanting to know, how can I know what the needs are in the church? Get to know people beyond surface level conversations. We all got plenty of needs. We just got to get low enough and listen long enough to find out what they are. Friends, I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. Listen to what I or another elder prays for in the pastoral prayer on Sunday morning. You'll find out the needs of our church. Listen to the prayer request on Sunday night. You'll find out the needs of our church. Look at the e-newsletter and the events coming up and the opportunities for service. That's where you're going to find the needs of our church. Linger after the service. Come to every public gathering you can. Ask questions that will reveal needs in other people's lives. Number three, get low and get serving. Get low and get serving. In John 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet Yes, he was giving them a lesson about the cleansing he would provide for them through the forgiveness of sins at the cross. But Jesus was also giving a very vivid lesson on humble service and love for one another. I want you to pay attention to a part of that passage almost everyone looks over. After washing their dirty, filthy feet, knowing that they will betray him at his neediest moment, Jesus tells them why I did what I did for you. Listen to what he says in John 13, 15 to 17. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, here it is. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word blessed there, makarios, means happy. You want to increase your joy in the Christian life? Give yourself to service in the Christian life. Less thoughts about myself, more thoughts about Christ and others, and your joy will increase. You'll be blessed, Jesus said. Fourth word of advice, step up and be faithful. Step up and be faithful. Jesus said if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us in due time. Walt Hendrickson writes a very good word here. Many aspire, but few attain because they are unfaithful in the little things. Can people say that about you? 
When you are given an assignment, when somebody's asked you to do something, can they mark it off as being completed? No matter how small it is, whether it's picking up a couple of postage stamps or mailing a letter, when you have been asked to do something, can you be counted on to do it? Are you faithful in that which is least? Jesus said there is no way he is going to give you greater responsibilities till you've proven yourself faithful in the little things. In a football game, you have players that are on the field and players on the sidelines, and friends, we need both. We need those who are on the front lines, and we need those encouraging those who are. But friends, in due time, whatever needs God brings to our lives, the Lord in his own timing and in his own way may raise you up to places of leadership, to places of greater responsibility. Friends, he may do exactly what you were spiritually called to do sooner than you realize. Friends, in seasons of waiting, God is always forming our character before commissioning us with greater acts of service. Friends, I was a janitor for nearly a decade, cleaning toilets for a living, There is no glamour in that business. You get looked over, looked through, and talked down to every single day. Almost 10 years of that. And I did not want to do that. I wanted to preach. I wanted to pastor. And you know what God had in mind for me? I'm forming character in you, young man, because character always precedes giftedness. And friends, the same is for us. He may put us in a season, it's a wilderness season, feeling overlooked, forgotten, and looked down upon and looked right through, and he's doing that for a reason. He's teaching us humility because those who humble themselves, he will exalt in due time. Last question you might ask, what if I feel called to a certain ministry? What if I feel called to be a pastor? What if I feel called to be a missionary? What if I feel called to use a specific gift I think I have? What if I think God's telling me to step down and take a break? What if I'm feeling called to leave this church to serve another church? Let me give you two words of advice. Trust Jesus supremely. Because he is Lord of his church. Number two, trust your elders who Jesus put over your life to shepherd you in that process. To help you think about your spiritual gifts. To help you think about whether you should go or whether you should stay. Friends, we are not paid babysitters. We are under shepherds watching over your soul. I'm even the only paid one. (laughs) Alan and Tom do it for free. We're here to shepherd you, to help you pray with you, fast with you if we need to. And the church is here for you as well. Don't try to discern the voice of God isolated all by yourself. You may very well hear a different voice that's not from God. Friends, whatever God calls us to do, whether we are paid for it or not, whether it's out in the world or in the church, we're working for the same boss. Marshall Seagal says, the bus driver's route, the surgeon's precision, and the concierge counsel are all the Lord's work when they are done in reliance upon him for strength, wisdom, and giftedness. When we love Jesus in all our work of any kind, we are serving him. The greatest hindrance to our usefulness in the Lord's hands is not that we are too strong, but we're too self-reliant. We're just not weak enough. Charles Spurgeon once said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. Hudson Taylor once said, God chose me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. Members of CCBC, as Alan said this morning, I'm proud of you. This is a servant-minded church. God has been pleased to answer that prayer. This is a gifted church that is willing and ready to serve. 
Many of you serve quietly and you serve faithfully. From cleaning the building, providing security, teaching and caring for kids, leading the music, running the sound, serving the Lord's Supper, organizing the finances, updating social media, showing hospitality, writing letters of encouragement, praying together, studying the Bible together, supporting one another's kids in sports and activities, giving financially to the church, and many countless activities that others will never see, but he does. Friends, what should you be praying for in the life of our church today? Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Friends, the Lord has a harvest here. And as the needs increase, the laborers will need to increase. God creates unity. We are called to protect that unity. And when we serve with the gifts he's given us, with the right attitude and the right aim in mind, we build up his church. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that in light of these truths tonight, that we would think well about how you have gifted us as a church and gifted us individually. Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart inspection on where our attitude or our hearts may be off. Lord, we pray that we would be marked first by love and humble service before we think we can use our gifts appropriately. And Father, we do thank you for every member of this church who has served faithfully and quietly Uh, even in endurance over the long haul. Lord, we also pray you give us wisdom on who needs to take a rest, who needs to step up. Lord, we pray that you would make the needs of this body more known to us all. And Lord, send more labors into this harvest. It's your harvest, it's your work, and we are your servants. Father, use us for your own glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.